It's an interesting passage we have to discuss today. Began in verse 14 with these words. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. What precisely does that mean? In order to understand what the text of 1 Samuel has tried to communicate to us, we have to contextualize the vocabulary that's being used here. And perhaps it goes without saying, but the language and culture of 1 Samuel is that of ancient Israel and not that of contemporary America. But recognizing that reality is important because the translation from Hebrew to English in this passage has caused some understandable confusion. So we'll need to consider first the vocabulary of the verse. Let's begin with the word translated spirit. When we read the phrase spirit of the Lord, it would be understandable for us to think of the third person of the divine trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. And when we read the phrase evil spirit, it'd be understandable for us to think of the sorts of unclean or demonic spirits that Jesus confronted during his earthly ministry as recounted for us in the New Testament Gospels. It would be normal to think those things. And if we heard the text with those ears, it would appear that 1 Samuel's told us that God removed his Holy Spirit from Saul and sent instead a demon to torment him. Is that what's been described by the prophetic authors of 1 Samuel? Well, the answer to that is no, that's not what they're describing, but it's understandable to think that is what they're talking about. The term spirit in the Old Testament is the Hebrew term ruach. Ruach can be translated a number of ways depending on the context. In essence, ruach means breath or wind or spirit. The word finds its most basic meaning in the story of the creation of humanity. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we find these words. Then the Lord God formed man, or the human, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the word ruach doesn't occur in that verse, but its presence and its meaning can be felt throughout it. Human beings began as dust. The Hebrew word refers to a type of powdery, pulverized material that can, is easily caught up by the wind. I usually think of the dust on my mantle. Uh, it tells you something about my house cleaning myself. But that, it's very, very light, very fine. Afar is the Hebrew word. And it was out of that insubstantial, powdery dust that God gave humanity its form. Then God blew into the first human's nostrils, the breath of life, and the formerly lifeless pile of dust became, in Hebrew, a nephesh, a soul, a living being. So again, ruach doesn't appear in this verse. The breath of life is not described as the ruach of life, but the two are related. The breath of life is the energy of life retained by living things. But the ruach of God, the spirit of God, is the source of life. To speak of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is to speak of energy coming from God or a force emanating from God or power demonstrated by God. When God breathed out his Spirit, life came into the first human. This is the Ruach of God, the energizing power of God breathed into the world. That's how it's used in the First Testament. 
Now, it's easy to think of the Spirit of God in the First Testament for these reasons, very impersonally, as a great gust of wind or a sudden release of energy or something like that. The Spirit of God seems to have been described that way with respect to Samson, for instance. Some of you may remember the story from the book of Judges. Anytime the Spirit of God came on Samson in the book of Judges, Samson demonstrated immense physical strength and impressive physical skills. However, God's breath is more organized than a simple, forceful exhale. When God breathes out his spirit, he most often does it in the course of speaking. Do you think of speaking as a type of breathing out? It is. It's a controlled type of breathing out, but it is exhaling. Just as God breathed out his spirit and humanity received the breath of life, so also God spoke into the lifeless chaos and light was born. Genesis says it this way, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God, a spirit from God, a ruach from God, swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Then God said. That's another way of saying that God breathed out. But God's breath in this passage came out as words. Let there be light. God breathed on dust, and it became a human being. God breathed on Samson, he became immensely strong. God breathed on darkness, and light came into being. The same image has been used in the New Testament. With respect to the Old Testament itself, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, all scripture is, the traditional translation is God-breathed. This is the New Revised Standard Version. Is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The word traditionally translated God-breathed and inspired by God here in the New Revised Standard Version is a word invented by the New Testament. It's not used in the Greek language anywhere else, and it's only used here. And it literally says, God-spirited. God-spirited. The connection between God, God's words, and God's spirit are so intimate in the Old Testament that it's not surprising to discover in the New Testament that God is in fact one being in three persons, the three persons being described by these three words, God, Father, Word, Son, and Spirit. When 1 Samuel 16, 14 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, that's another way of saying that the Lord was no longer empowering Saul or speaking to him. God had fallen silent when it came to Saul. This statement is a repetition of the earlier statement of Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, 26. Samuel said to Saul, I'll not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. You've rejected the breathing of God. You've rejected the spirit of God. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So the Lord has stopped speaking to him. When I said it, you didn't do it. And so now you won't hear any more from me. That's what Samuel is saying. Consequently, the text tells us that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And that might sound mysterious to you, but you already know what it is. It's already been described earlier in the text. Let me see if I can explain. 
As we've been discussing, this is an evil wind or an evil word that's tormenting Saul. Let's now consider the word evil. Evil in Hebrew is not a moral term. Oftentimes in American English, when we say something is evil, we mean that it's inherently bad in a moral or an ethical sense. That's how we use the word. The word translated evil is the Hebrew word ra. And ra refers refers to something injurious or something hurtful. Not something necessarily wrong or sinful. Something can be evil, ra, hurtful, and not be wrong, sinful in in the Old Testament. Those are different terms. For instance, when God told the Israelites in Exodus chapter 33, verse 3, I'll not go up among you or I would consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people, the text tells us the following. When the people heard these harsh words, they mourned and no one put on ornaments. Well, the word there is not harsh, it's rod. When they heard these evil words, of course, we've translated away. We wouldn't want anybody to think God said anything evil because of the way we use the word in English. The word translated harsh in Exodus 33.4 is the same word translated evil in 1 Samuel 16.14. So the sense of the word is not moral or spiritual evil. Evil in Hebrew refers to someone or something hurtful or painful or injurious. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer when we say, deliver us from the evil one. What that means from a Hebraic perspective is anyone who would try to harm you. That's what it means. In fact, Deuteronomy 6.22 associates this word, ra, with God himself, when it says the following, the Lord displayed before our eyes great and, strangest translation of this word I've ever seen, awesome signs and wonders against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household. The word translated awesome in this verse is again the Hebrew word ra, evil. In this verse, Moses, of course, is not accusing God of doing something morally or ethically wrong against the Egyptians. That's why we've translated it the way we have. Moses was simply explaining that God had acted in ways that brought harm to the Egyptians. Clearly, he did. That is Ra, anything that is hurtful. So in light of this, it would probably be clearer. This is my translation of 1 Samuel 16, 14. And it's more of a paraphrase, but I think it would be clearer to say it this way. Now, God had stopped speaking empowering words to Saul, and instead Saul was tormented day and night by the last words God had spoken to him. It seems clear enough that the evil spirit from the Lord that was tormenting Saul were the last words Samuel had spoken to him. Saul was being tormented by God's rejection of him. And so the prophets have described that experience as an evil wind from God tormenting him. If you've ever been convicted of sin, you've felt that tormenting word of God, haven't you? Jesus described the Spirit of God in the New Testament in very similar ways to the way we're describing things here. On the night that Jesus was arrested, the Gospel of John tells us that he said the following to his disciples. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but it describes the Holy Spirit very clearly. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking really about his ascension. It begins with his crucifixion. For if I do not go away, the advocate, who's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. And this is how Jesus describes his activity in the world. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because they don't believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you'll see me no longer. About judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. You see the association of the Spirit with words? And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that the fa- all that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in describing how the disciples and the world would variously experience the sending of the Holy Spirit of God in the wake of Jesus' ascension into the heavens, Jesus spoke in ways consistent with the experience of King Saul in 1 Samuel. For those in rebellion against God, the Spirit will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. That was where Saul was being tormented day and night. For those in relationship with God, the Spirit will guide, speak to, and teach them. In the context of 1 Samuel, those in rebellion will experience God's Spirit as injurious, as painful, as evil. While those in relationship with God will experience God's Spirit as empowering. So how was Saul to silence this tormenting spirit from God? How was Saul to silence the guilt he felt? in having rebelled against God and the fear he felt about the impending tearing of the kingdom away from him that Samuel had prophesied. He wrangled over this day and night. How was Saul to fill the void left by those positive and empowering words God had been speaking to him through Samuel and now were were silent? The solution of Saul's servants was music. They believed that music could serve as an analgesic, as a substitute for the departure of the Spirit of God from Saul. They believed music could take his mind off of his distance from God and bring him some measure of peace. Ironically enough, the musician they suggested was none other than the same young man whom God had sent Samuel to anoint to replace Saul. And there's more to the choice of David in the story than simply that. 1 Samuel 16, 13 has just informed us of the following. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Curiously enough, the Spirit of the Lord returned to Saul with David. The text of 1 Samuel proceeds to say the following. This is beginning in verse 21 of chapter 16. And David said to Saul, and David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he's found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, you hear that now? Whenever those thoughts of the last words God said to him came on him, and he began to wrangle in his spirit over his rejection, whenever that happened, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and Saul would be relieved, and he would feel better and the evil spirit would depart from him. David's presence and David's playing silenced the conviction and the guilt tormenting Saul's soul. But only temporarily. David was simply a salve. He was not a cure. 
The relief only came to Saul when he was in David's presence and while David was playing. Alone, Saul was still tormented day and night by what he had done and by what God had said to him. Eventually, not even David's presence and playing would soothe Saul. Years later, in an incident preserved for us in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 10 to 11, we find the following. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was particularly guilt-stricken and depressed on this day. He was prophesying in his house, trying to apply the word of God to the moment. While David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. By this point in Saul's life, not even the music would quiet his convictions. This too is similar to what Jesus said would happen to his disciples. As soothing as their presence and relationship with God might be to the world, eventually the world would hate them on account of God's presence and God's word being with them. As it was with David, it would be later with Jesus' own disciples. What does this story tell us about God? First, our personal experience of God's presence has much to do with our relationship with him. For those in rebellion against God, God's word will feel oppressive. It will feel tormenting. It will feel hurtful. We might even read it and call it evil. Or in the language of 1 Samuel, like an evil spirit tormenting us. For those in relationship with God, however, God's word will be a source of empowerment, of instruction, and of edification. We can tell much about our relationship with God by our response to the words he has spoken through his prophets and his apostles. It was Samuel's words to Saul that tormented him, but it was Samuel's words to David that empowered him. Second, the, peaceful, the presence of peaceful people or of talented people can temporarily numb us to our separation from God, but they cannot repair it. It's a false substitute. So to put this in more contemporary terms, we can lose ourselves in a sporting event or a play or an art exhibit or a concert or even a worship set in church. We can lose ourselves there just like Saul could lose himself in the music of David. As was true with Saul, these environments can quiet the despair of our hearts and make us feel closer to God again temporarily. However, when the event ends, when the talented people depart, when we are again alone, our awareness of our separation from God will return. It is our experience of being alone with God's word that is the best indication of the health of our relationship with God. It's there that we either experience what he says as life or we feel it as death. When God breathes, God speaks. This again is how the Apostle Paul described the Old Testament as a text through which God has breathed, God has spoken, God has spirited. And I keep saying it's the Old Testament because there was no New Testament when 2 Timothy was written. They were still gathering those books. Those words are about the Old Testament, not about the New. That's other passages for the New. The Word of God is tormenting. It's convicting. It's hurtful to those who are in rebellion against God. 
To those who are in relationship with God, however, the word of God is life-giving. It's a source of instruction and a guide in dark places. All Saul needed to do was receive God's word. What would have happened had he abdicated the throne when God rejected him as king? His suffering was because he refused and tried to cling to what God had taken. It would have been a different story. May we never resist the word of God to us, for his word is peace. A tree church is always known by its fruit. May those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.